Okay, well, good morning, everyone. So good to see everyone here this morning. I'd like to start out with a little confession. <sighs> a couple weeks ago, I fell for some newsfeed bait. Um, I hate it when that happens. It wasn't until earlier this, earlier this week I finally figured out how to turn that widget off on my desktop. I'm still trying to figure out how to turn it off on my phone. So if you can help me with that, I'd appreciate it. But um, I just don't want to be subjected to annoying clickbait that interrupts what I'm trying to do. Um, so you know what I'm talking about. You know, if you hold your mouse or your finger at the wrong place on the screen, all of a sudden you're, you're hit with a pop-up ad or a news article or something. And uh, it's something that either Google or Microsoft thinks is interesting to you. And I always get hit with spates of articles about the Beatles, the Stones, or another 60s rock group. Are you surprised? <laughs> okay. So the more times you bite, the better they can define their algorithms so they can later entice you with even more enticing clickbait. So um, anyway, a couple of weeks ago, I saw a headline flash across my screen that said, thank you, Bob Dylan. And of course, I felt for it because I said, oh no, did the guy die? You know, after all, he's 82 years old. Wow, Bob Dylan is 82 years old. Now, some of you, um, probably the majority of this church, which is on the younger side, are thinking, who is Bob Dylan and why should I care? <laughs> uh, Danielle is probably one exception, okay? Her dad raised her right, and he raised her listening to the Beatles, the Stones, the Animals, uh, you know, all the great groups from the 60s. But anyway, so um, let's see, what was I, now, Dylan, for those of you who don't know, okay, he wasn't exactly a rock musician. He started out as a folk singer with just his acoustic guitar and his harmonica, which was, you know, had one of those harmonica holders. What do you call those things, harmonica holders around his neck? And he'd play his guitar, and everyone's in between verses, he'd play his harmonica. And they were mostly social commentary or protest songs, a couple of love songs now and then, like, no, 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 it ain't me, babe. You know, that sort of thing. Um, but later, he gave up his acoustic guitar and his harmonica, and he got himself an electric guitar, and he started what he called folk rock. So he had a full-fledged band behind him, and a lot of his fans really didn't appreciate that because they, they were his purest fans. Said, no, 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 you sold out to electric rock and roll, and um, they probably didn't appreciate it when later on he started to dabble into country, and he would go around with people like Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson. And then in 1980, he shocked the world. He announced that he had become a Christian, and he actually wrote some pretty good Christian songs that really were God-honoring, and they were inspiring. And later on, he just stopped doing that. 
Only God knows whether his conversion was genuine. I sure hope it was. I really do. Um, but Dylan had two um, traits. One, an incredible ability to write inspiring lyrics. And two, a lackluster ability to actually sing them. Okay. Uh, he had a bit of a squawky voice, and his songs were half-sung and half-spoken. It was a style of music that had to grow on you. You had to get used to it. So I figure you need to develop a taste for it. So, yes, I'm actually going to sing a Dylan song, okay? <laughs> ah. Okay, this was probably his signature song for just when he went into his folk rock genre and it goes like this once upon a time you dressed so fine you threw the bumps a dime in your prime didn't you People called to say, beware, doll, you're bound to fall. You thought they were all kidding you. You used to laugh about everybody that was hanging out. Now you don't talk so loud. Now you don't seem so proud about having to be scrounging your next meal how does it feel how does it feel to be without a home a complete unknown like a rolling stone how does it feel how does it feel to be on your own a complete unknown like a rolling stone Now, a number of you are probably thinking right now, what could that song possibly have anything to do with today's passage of Scripture? Well, you're going to have to bear with me. You're going to have to... Uh, it's not readily apparent, but it will become apparent. So without further ado, let's take a look at God's Word. We're in the middle of our series on the book of Luke, and we're looking at Luke chapter 6, verses... 12 to 19. So if you could stand for the reading of God's word. It says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, 
and Andrew his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who, called, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. You may be seated. If you're taking notes, the title of this sermon is Desperate for Jesus. The person being addressed in Dylan's song is someone who had been a high society debutante, living the good life, but now somehow has undergone a major reversal of fortune, and now she is in very desperate straits. My main premise in the sermon is that everyone, everyone, is desperate for Jesus, but not everyone realizes it. Even those of us who realize that we are desperate for Jesus don't really know how desperate we are. There are three categories of people in today's passage. To be more precise, there are two explicit categories and one implicit category. The first one is those who are attracted to Jesus and are willing to follow him. Two, there are those who earnestly seek Jesus because they desperately want for their needs to be met. And three, there are those who are desperate for Jesus. This is the implicit category because they realize that he is their only hope. So the first category, those who are attracted to Jesus and are willing to follow him. Well, the obvious candidates for this category are the disciples whom Jesus not only chose to be his disciples, but he gave them the role of apostle, those who would minister with him and those who would go about, uh, who, who he would go about with them, and he was going to actually send them out to represent him. He was very careful in choosing these men, having spent an entire night praying about it. According to the account in Luke 6, 12 to 16, the apostles are, the apostles are Simon Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot. Now, if you arranged, rearranged all four of the Gospels so everything was in chronological order, you could conclude that we first meet some of the disciples in John chapter 1. That's where we um, meet Simon Peter and a few of the others. Um, and that's when John the Baptist first identifies Jesus as the Messiah and tells his disciples to start following him. So let's turn there right now to John chapter 1 verses 35 to 42. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. 
And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you'll see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, which of course means rock. Okay. So Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist who introduced him to Jesus. Based solely on John's testimony, Andrew confidently told his brother Simon, we have found the Messiah. It's interesting, it didn't take a whole lot of convincing. I always wondered about that. Perhaps, maybe Andrew was present when John baptized Jesus and saw the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove. We can only guess. But it seems that Andrew, as a disciple of John, had some messianic expectations. He was longing and hoping for some kind of Messiah, hopefully the Messiah, to come. Messianic expectations were running high at the time. It had been a couple of hundred years since the Maccabean revolt kicked the Greeks out of Jerusalem and actually established an independent kingdom in 167 BC. That was a major sign of hope. We went through the series on citizen exile where under Ezra and Nehemiah they got to go back to their land but they were still slaves of Babylon or of Persia or what have you but they were actually an independent kingdom in one, as of 167 BC but those hopes for a restored kingdom of Israel were soon dashed by the hated Romans. Perhaps they saw the Roman conquest as the darkest hour before the dawn Oh, how they longed, they longed for a savior, one who would not only save them from the Romans, but who would restore the kingdom of Israel. They were desperate for a Davidic king who would reign over the beautiful land that flows with milk and honey and rule justly and allow everyone to live at peace under their own vine and fig tree. Now, other disciples among those Jesus chose were Philip and Bartholomew. Now, if you've read your New Testament enough and you've read the accounts and the various lists of the disciples, you might see a few discrepancies in the names, and that should not surprise you. Uh, it was very common for people to go by more than one name, uh, depending on the context. For instance, Bartholomew literally means son of Tholomew. I don't think he typically went by that name. It would be kind of like instead of calling me Leo, you would call me son of Dominic. Believe me, I love my dad, and I'm very proud to be his son, was very proud to be his son, but I'd rather you call me Leo, okay? <laughs> just um, the other day at camp, I just threw Eric for a loop when I said, hey, Thaddeus, come over here. So that's one of his other names. So um, no, Bartholomew is most likely Nathaniel, whom we also meet the first time in John 1, where he's mentioned together with Philip. And so let's take a look here. This is John chapter 1, verses 43 to 50. 
The next day, next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip called Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said of you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than that. Okay. Talk about messianic expectations. Nathaniel didn't need much convincing either. Even Jesus was impressed with how quickly he believed. Now, Nathaniel and Philip were attracted to Jesus as Messiah and were ready and willing to follow him, as were James and John, whom we met earlier in Luke chapter 5. It was there that Peter started to realize that Jesus was perhaps more than a political messiah. That there was something divine in Jesus that first struck fear in his heart. This was after the miraculous catch of fish. We went over this section of scripture a few weeks ago in uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were also James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Then there was Matthew, another one of the people who were willing to follow Jesus because they were attracted to him. We note Matthew as the author of the first gospel, who was also the hated tax collector. We don't know exactly what drew him to Jesus. He'd probably been living the good life, but he probably didn't appreciate being hated by his fellow countrymen for having sold out to the Romans. Maybe he hated himself. Maybe his conscience was tormenting him, saying, you know, I know what I'm doing is not right. So it turns out he didn't need too much convincing when Jesus called him back in chapter 5. Then there is Thomas, who unfortunately we know Thomas, Thomas because he got some really bad press toward the end of the Gospel of John because he's the guy who says, I am not going to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead until I can stick my finger in the wounds of his hands and put my hand in his side. And that's what we remember Thomas for. I prefer to remember Thomas differently. Um, the time when they just gotten escaped, they just escaped from being stoned in Judea, and they were outside of Judea, and Jesus says, "Let's go back." And the disciples are saying, "Huh?" And Jesus explains that he wants to go back because Lazarus has died and I want to go back and wake him up. 
And what does Thomas say? He says, let us also go back to Judea that we may die with him. That's what you call loyalty. If Jesus said, we go, Thomas goes, and no matter what the consequences. That's what I prefer to remember Thomas by. Then there was Simon the Zealot, who was obviously attracted to Jesus the Messiah. He belonged to a party that would have been willing to take up arms to overthrow the Romans. I wonder how well he got along with Matthew. The only thing we know about James, son of Alphaeus, is that he is not the son of James. He's not James, the son of Zebedee, and he's not James, who is Jesus's brother. Judas, the son of James, could be the disciple who was elsewhere referred to as Thaddeus. Then, of course, there's Judas Iscariot, whom we know infamously. We otherwise know nothing of his background except that his surname means the man from Kiriath. That's all we know. We know that, and we know that he betrayed Jesus. All of these men were attracted to Jesus in that they were willing to drop everything and follow him. Some of them were looking primarily for the Messiah who would deliver them from Rome. But were they desperate for Jesus? They were more desperate than they knew. Their awareness of the need for Jesus perhaps evolved as they got a better glimpse of who exactly he was. And they also got a better glimpse of themselves and their own sinfulness. And like Peter, they had their own Isaiah 6 moment and said, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. So perhaps they got a better idea of how desperate for Jesus they were. Other than the disciples who were chosen as apostles, there's a second category of people who are willing, who are following Jesus. We see them in verses 17 to 19. And this is our second category. I would call them those who earnestly seek Jesus because they desperately want for their needs to be met. Let's take a look at that again. It says, And he came down with them and stood on a level plain place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowds sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. These people came from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and as far away as Tyre and Sidon. Dawn, that's way over on the Mediterranean seacoast. The mere distances involved for traveling on foot were long enough to tell us that these people really, really, really wanted to get to Jesus. Perhaps they were even desperate. If they were desperate, it's because they were seeking physical healing. Others were seeking spiritual relief, wanting to be delivered of whatever demonic forces were oppressing them or tormenting them. And these motivations, the desperation for wanting to see Jesus for these reasons, were entirely appropriate and laudable. Some of us can be theological purists and say, if you're going to come to Jesus, you must recognize him for who he is, 
bow your knee to him as your only Lord and Savior and your only hope for salvation. And it is indeed true, that's right, that Jesus is Lord and Savior, the only begotten Son of God, fully God and fully man, the image of the invisible God and the re exact representation of his being, the one who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave and ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. But these people who came from as far away as Tyre and Sidon, perhaps many of them being carried that far on stretchers, they didn't know any of that. They just wanted to be healed and they had faith that Jesus would heal them. He didn't ask them if they properly knew who he was. He graciously granted their requests. He commended and rewarded their faith. He had compassion on these people who were lost like sheep without a shepherd. The name of the series that we're doing is called what? The Compassionate Conqueror. Jesus is indeed the conqueror, the ruler of all, who came to conquer sin, death, the devil, hell. He came to conquer, to restore God's creation to its rightful order. But he's also the compassionate conqueror. He had compassion on those who were oppressed by physical and spiritual infirmities, whether they had their theology straight or not. In this particular passage, it seems like it was both Jesus' and the Father's good pleasure to open up the floodgates of God's mercy. And they didn't even have to ask. They just had to get close enough to touch him, and they were healed. Of course, that's not our experience because Jesus is not physically here for us to touch. But this incident does give us a picture of his compassion for those who are oppressed, those who are in need. Now, I said this a few weeks ago when we looked at the healing of the paralytic, and I will say it again because it bears repeating. We all too often tend to settle for theoretical faith. Of course we believe Jesus can heal us. He's God. He can do anything. But we need to have the faith of the paralytic, the faith of these people who came all the way from Tyre and Sidon, to get to Jesus because they were convinced not only that Jesus could heal them, they were convinced that he would. And their faith was rewarded. Yes, I know, I know, as well as you, that there are times when in God's infinite wisdom and in his sovereignty, he chooses to not heal us as quickly or in the way we would like. He sometimes allows our trials and circumstances to remain so that we might be shaped and conformed to his image for his glory and for our ultimate good. I am fully aware of and fully agree with the theology of bearing up under suffering for the glory of God, but that is only part of the picture. The other part of the picture, which is just as true and valid, is that Jesus takes great delight in healing the sick and delivering the oppressed because he is the compassionate conqueror, amen? As I said the last time, and as we said in the last sermon series, all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that were in operation in the days of the New Testament are available today. There is nothing that says that they were supposed to stop. 
And these gifts not only include things like prophecy and tongues, but also gifts of healing, miracles, and faith. And by faith, I don't just mean saving faith, which is itself a miracle, but I don't just mean saving faith that causes us to be born again to believe in Jesus and his saving work on the cross for us. I mean a faith that takes God at his word, a faith that continues to ask, that continues to seek, that continues to knock, knowing that the Father is eager and willing to give good gifts to his children. Amen? As you keep leaning into the Holy Spirit and seek his filling and empowerment, pray for him to be manifest in our lives individually and corporately. Go ahead, pray for gifts of wisdom, encouragement, prophecy, and even tongues, but let us not neglect to seek gifts of faith and miracles and healing. Better yet, just do this. Just pray for yourself and others to be healed and expect them to answer. Now there's one final category of people who are desperate for Jesus, and I suspect or I hope that it includes almost everyone, if not everyone, in this room. There are those who are desperate for Jesus because they realize that he is their only hope. This is the category of people that is not explicitly mentioned in today's passage, but you might recognize yourself in this category. The bottom line is that we are all desperate for Jesus, whether we realize it or not. And even if we do realize it, we don't know the half of it. Let's do an experiment here. Everyone put your hand on your heart. Press in. You feel it beating? Okay. I'm told that it can beat as much as 100,000 times a day. Actually, in my case, I think my heart rate is about 50 beats per minute, which would make it 3,000 3, beats an hour, which would make it 76,000 beats a day. Now, some of you have had some issues with your heartbeat. You know who you are. Some of you have had cardiac incidents, and we are grateful that you are still here with us. Very grateful. But even for those whose hearts beat like clockwork, stop and think. Is there some type of scientific explanation as to why the electrical impulse that causes your heart to beat shouldn't just up and stop? It's Jesus, the creator of all things. He's the one who keeps your heart beating. Now, so something else. Everyone, take a deep breath, hold it in for a second or two, and then let it out. Okay, come on, let's go. Okay. Do you feel the air going through your lungs? I wonder how many times a day that happens. Now, the following information is courtesy of Google. There I go again. We breathe in and out about 22,000 times a day, we're powered by breathing, our lungs fuel us with oxygen, our body's life-sustaining gas. Our lungs breathe in air, then remove the oxygen and pass it through to our bloodstream, where it is carried off to tissues and organs that allow us to walk, talk, and move. What's really interesting is that we don't normally breathe voluntarily, though we just did. We took in a deep breath, we held it in, and we let it out. We breathe just because we do. 
And one thing we can voluntarily do, we can hold our breath, and if we do, do it long enough, you know what happens? We pass out, and then we start breathing again. Now, how cool is that? God has created us in such a way to protect us from our own stupidity, okay? So, by the way, parents, if you're in a battle of wills with your kids and they su suddenly get the idea, I'm going to just hold my breath until I turn blue, I'll just say, be my guest. They'll be fine, okay? All right. As Paul told the Athenians on Mars Hill, in him we live and move and have our being. He told the Colossians, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Every molecule in this universe, including the ones in your body, are held together by Jesus Christ. Every moment you are alive, it is because his, it is with his will that you are alive, that you continue to be alive. Now, some of you might find this scary, especially when I talk about 100,000 heartbeats a minute or 22,000 breaths of air per day. Some of you might be saying, oh, no, I can die any second now. Guess what? That's true. You can die any second now. If it weren't for the love and the faithfulness, the kindness and mercy and grace and power and sovereignty of the one who is keeping you alive, the thought could be scary, but in fact, it is very comforting that it is Jesus who is keeping you alive. Even the hairs on your head are numbered. One, two, three, four. In my case, that's not terribly impressive, but with a lot of you guys, like Ryan McKinney there, the hair on his head, the hair on his face, that, that's, okay, yeah, so that's pretty impressive. And not one of them will fall, not one of them will perish apart from the will of your Father, apart from Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, you might be saying, okay, Leo, I get it. I've heard this before. Of course, Jesus sustains the universe, and he sustains my very life. What else can you tell me? Part of the problem is the thinking or attitude behind that we tend to be so underwhelmed and unimpressed by things that are actually amazing, things that should blow our mind. So far, we've only talked about our desperate dependent on Jesus in the physical realm. I don't need to tell you that in the spiritual realm, without Jesus, we would be toast. Actually, I do need to tell you because I'm never going to tire of preaching the glorious gospel. From the moment we were born or even conceived, we have sinned in word, thought, and deed. You and I have been richly deserving of the holy wrath of a perfectly holy and righteous God. And there is nothing, nothing we can do to undo or undo or atone for all the sins that have piled up since birth and that continue to pile up. If it weren't for the fact that Jesus, the holy and righteous Son of God, became man and lived a perfectly righteous and holy life, being subject to every temptation that you and I are subject to, and unlike us, 
remained sinless. And because of that, he sympathizes with our weaknesses and has compassion on us. But he's not only compassionate, he is also the compassionate conqueror. He went to the cross to pay for our sins, to bear God's righteous wrath against our sins. He stared sin and death and devil and the devil right in the face, and he conquered them all. Talk about desperately dependent on Jesus. Indeed, without Jesus, we would be toast. We are indeed desperate for Jesus, whether we know it or not. Those who do not know it might be more than satisfied with the things that they have in this life. You know, sometimes I fear that this describes me. Now, there were times in my life when Sue and I were first married that though we were not as desperate as the desperate debutante in Dylan's song, one that Dylan rebuked in Like a Rolling Stone, there were times when we had some pretty slim pickings when we were just married, at least by U.S. standards. We were much more consciously dependent on Jesus back in those days as we lived from paycheck to paycheck. That is when we had a paycheck. And we could tell you stories of how sometimes otherwise unexplained checks would show up in the mail at just the right time. That actually happened a few times. Now, I look out, my, out the front window of my rather spacious home and the first thing in my line of sight is the home where Luke and Angela live and all their needs are met. The next thing I see is the house where Alan and Christine live with our four beautiful grandchildren, James and Jennifer and Noel and Rosie. And though we do not lack for troubles and heartaches, I can say with the psalmist, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. All of these things are gracious gifts from the abundant bounty of our Lord Jesus Christ. I do not deserve them. They could all be gone tomorrow, but Jesus will always be mine. Though I enjoy and am grateful for the life he has given me, my family and my possessions, my dear brothers and sisters Christ in Christ, especially all of you here in Living Hope Church, may I count them as nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus my Lord. I love and am grateful for all the things he has given me, but may that love and gratitude pale in comparison what I feel toward Jesus, for whom I am desperate and to whom I owe everything. We are all desperate for Jesus. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on back up, please, for our closing song. As we sing 
and confess our utter dependence on Jesus, I want you to prayerfully think of the three categories of people in today's text. Are you one of those who's attracted to Jesus and willing to follow him? Hopefully that includes all of us. But perhaps you are someone who is just beginning to see it because you have never really trusted in him and him alone as Lord and Savior. If that is you, I'm sure that I and many others here would love to talk to you and pray with you to settle that matter in your hearts once and for all. Are you one who desperately needs Jesus for a specific need, perhaps a physical or spiritual infirmity? Or perhaps a need outside of yourself, be it a financial or a relational issue? Jesus is the compassionate conqueror. He knows your need even before you ask. If that is you, we would be, delight, be delighted to pray with you and for you, fully expecting that Jesus delights to answer those prayers. Perhaps you fall into the third category. You're more than fully aware, you're more than aware of your, that Jesus is your only hope, and that is wonderful, but perhaps you want more of Jesus. You want a greater faith and want to be empowered and filled by the Holy Spirit in a greater way. As we sing the closing song, both Adam and I will be up here, perhaps off to the side, ready to pray for anyone who desires prayer. You may do that during the closing song or afterwards. We're not going anywhere. Lord Jesus, we come to you even now as we are. We recognize you for who you are, and we know that apart from you, we can do nothing. We are desperate for you, and we thank you that you delight to come to us and meet our need. Amen.